Good morning. I'm Anna Marie, and it's time again for Focus. This is a closer look at people, places, and things, organizations, right here in our own backyard. People who are helping other people this time. It's Michael McSurdy, President and CEO of Family and Children's Service. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Anna, for having me. So let's start by telling people what Family and Children's Service is, please. Okay. So Family and Children's Service started actually back in 1943 during and following World War II as one of Nashville's first social service agencies, really looking at the needs of families. Mm -hmm. So what happened at that time was there was a massive change in the way families functioned because fathers were going off to war, mothers were going to work to start supporting families. Some fathers weren't coming back from war, unfortunately. And when they did, some families just didn't continue functioning the way they did prior to that Mm -hmm. interruption and those losses and those traumas. So a group of community members came together to mobilize people to address this need at a time when people really weren't talking about problems or talking about concerns. So as we started providing family counseling, providing case management for moms, struggling to figure out their place in the world, working and still being moms. Whoa, boy, that's still active right now. Right, exactly. So a lot of our a lot of our focus has absolutely stayed the same over time. And one thing that was different back then was because people weren't really talking about concerns, as they started working with somebody, issues and needs came up. So there were maybe families pa- family patterns of abuse or oh family loss histories or trauma histories Mm -hmm. or issues with addiction. We didn't necessarily know what they were called back then, but we knew that support was needed. We didn't know what they were called, but we saw that there was a problem. There were issues, there were challenges that people were facing, and they had been trying to struggle and do it by themselves. Right. And one of the things about kids is they're often the canary in the cave, meaning if there's a problem within a family It may be first discovered at school. It may be first discovered at church or at scouts or on the baseball field. It's what's going on. And then as you start to work with the family, you can see, well, there's not really something wrong. There's something that this family's experienced. And we really try now to have a different conversation. So we we now try to say, instead of what's wrong with you, Mm -hmm. it's, gosh, what's happened? And that is a very different way of then looking at, well, then how do we support you? We're not supporting you to fix something that's broken. Let's fix you. Yeah. Right. We're supporting you to understand what happened, figure out how to kind of take that experience and move forward and still move on. So that was really the approach back then. We didn't know so much what it was called. Um, in fact, we worked with the College of Social Work at the University of Tennessee to develop the first training program for new social workers in the state. We were also the first um, agency to be racially integrated agency, social service agency in the state. And um, we've always had a real kind of finger on the pulse of what's going on. I think what we've done really well for 80 some years is be ready to address the next need instead of seeing it and then having to gear up. So we kind of are in there working with the schools working with um, with city and county, well, then city and county government, working with our, our local government and with the state to be ready to address needs, to have ideas, to come to the table. And we've kind of always been able to do that and, and be what I think is a good partner for Nashville and 
in the more recent times for the whole state. We have a couple of programs that are statewide. And so you've been able to be proactive rather than reactive. Right. And there are certainly times when we're part of the mix of everybody saying, oh, my gosh, what's happened? But when we when we are, I think we pretty quickly acknowledge that, well, okay, this has happened. And so what's what's our response need to be and how do we help other people be part of a solution instead of just kind of being stuck in a problem? And there have been various times kind of in our history when that's what we what that's what we did. Oh, my gosh, what's happened? Because when a family is experiencing some sort of hardship and it's affecting the kids and uh, that's kind of discovered, maybe like you said, at school or what has happened? What happened back then? It was the loss of a parent, the changing of the family structure. And and then as the years progressed, what other kinds of things happened? Because uh, that makes sense to me. Something happened. Right. So I think certainly we've seen changes in families. Not that change is bad, but we we now what used to be thought of as a nuclear family of two parents and two point three children yeah. is now maybe a mom, maybe it's just a dad, maybe it's two dads, maybe it's two moms, maybe it's a grandparent raising a child because the birth parents of that child aren't able to for for one of many different reasons. Yeah, and so th- that happens within families, and then. What we see is then changes and experiences start to stress out school systems. So in there what need, way? Well, there need to be more supports in schools because kids come to school carrying kind of the experience of their families. And so they're at school trying to learn, and schools are doing a great job mm-hmm. trying to do everything they can do. But schools are, it's a place of education. So then we had to partner with schools, and they had to partner with us and other nonprofits, certainly, to say, okay, but we're going to make sure other needs are met. So people like Family and Children's is there to bring other resources into the schools, to provide counseling in the schools, mm-hmm. to bring other counselors into the schools, or to make sure Second Harvest is there and they're helping support. So a lot of what we do is we connect people to resources. Oh, that's good. And our mission is we connect individuals and families to hope, to healing, and to one another. And so that looks a lot of different ways. In counseling, it can be connecting families back together. In schools, it can be making sure the right people are there to support the families and children and teachers of that school. Out in the community, it can just be making sure people are connected to healthcare resources they need. Mm-hmm. Or we have a crisis line, which makes sure that people 24 hours a day, seven days a week are able to find support and know, know how to immediately get their needs met, how to be safe. Uh, we address suicidal issues, homicidal issues. But then also, what has caused that for that person and how might we explore mitigating it? How might we explore helping them make their situation better? So we go back to the what's happened. Exactly. How can we address that? Not just like, how can we fix you? Right. Because then they go back to that situation. They're still living in that situation. It's just important to know that all those things that have happened to us, we know as adults, we come into work and we can think through, well, I'm feeling low because X happened. What tends to happen when we look at other people is we first go to the what's wrong with you place. True. And this isn't just our approach. It's, it's, a, a, it's the approach that hopefully most social service agencies are using. And it's the approach of asking instead of what's wrong with you, moving the question to, gosh, what's happened? Tell me about 
what's going on in your family. Tell me what's going on in your community. And sometimes it is not family. It is whole communities. So when and what can, like what? Well, if we look at supports to um we could be working with a family and we discover wait, they're part of a larger immigrant or refugee community. Okay. Our working with them is not just working with them. It's it's realizing wait, there are a lot of needs out there. So what do we do? Who do we partner with? In situations like that, we we have a great working relationship with Catholic charities. They do a lot of work with immigrant and refugee wow. families. So we we work really well with them. We or or I hope we do. Um, <laughs> and um and so we we don't we we absolutely never think we can do it all. Our goal, though, is to make sure we do the things we do well, which are counseling, case management, linking people to resources, crisis response, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then we work to make sure that people leave their interaction with us with more connections than they had when they came to us. So they know because people don't know where to start. Right. Don't have any idea of where to start. Often we start in the problem or the what's wrong. And if we can start oh. with, okay, well, what happened? Okay, well, what would shore you up right now so that you can deal with what happened? Yes. Instead of stop that behavior, yeah. which is, you know, yes. has historically been our approach. Oh, my goodness. Now, does family and children's service primarily focus on, first of all, the mental health needs? What I would say is mental health runs through everything we do or an understanding of trauma and experience runs through everything we do. Mm-hmm. So we have four basic program areas. Okay. Um, the the longest, and there are two that are kind of the longest and most historic. So when we think of our counseling program, it's counseling that we do in our office. It's counseling we do in other agencies where we have staff at another agency providing clinical services there okay. so that their clients don't have to go somewhere else. So we have clinicians at um, Conexion Americas. So we're there at Casa Azafran, which is yeah. their building. And we have staff there who are, are bicultural, who can meet the needs of that community. That way, Conexion doesn't have to create a clinical program. Right. We're their partner in that. Paired with our, our clinical services like that are, is our crisis line, which is the 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week um, a crisis service where we partner with 988, which is the national suicide prevention hotline, the number that anyone can call anywhere in the country. And, and they're really more than just suicide, but that was kind of their origin. So we partner with them. We take their calls, people who call the 988 number from our area, we get those. And then we also get calls just to our crisis line number, 244-7444 okay. um, here in Nashville. And we take about 40,000 crisis line and 988 calls every year. And then we work with another six to 7,000 individuals and families in more one-to-one counseling. 40,000 people in crisis reaching out. Right. And probably thousands and thousands more not knowing where to reach out. And about 9,000 of those are... Uh, expressing some suicidal or homicidal ideation or have in the past. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm really proud of our staff for is in less than 1% or maybe it's 1% of the cases, do we have to support somebody in getting um, help to their house, say. We're, and, and 
it's not wrong to get somebody help if that's what they need. Yes. But often that what they need is to explore what's going on. And then they're not at that place anymore. And it is not nearly as interruptive to their life. And they're more likely to call back next time. Wow. If everything blows up and the police are at your door, you know, that's really it's it's an absolute necessary last resort. Yeah. And so we we want to make sure everyone's safe, but we also want to make sure that it's the right level of intervention. And our staff is really good in their conversations with folks to make sure that, okay, you know, I can can you put me on the phone with your wife? Let's talk about how we can make sure you're safe and what could happen. Right. Or will you call us back tomorrow? It sounds like you have some strategies. Let's talk tomorrow. And if you don't call us back, will you give me the number so we can follow up with you? Right. And we do. And we're um, we're very successful with that. And um, very proud that that service is available to the community because it saves millions of dollars in um, inpatient or emergency room services. Yeah. Just a phone call and somebody to talk to. How important do you find that is in people's mental health? To have somebody to talk to and not somebody who's going to just add to their confusion or how they're feeling in a negative way. In all our counseling, it's we don't want it to be something that has to go on forever. So it's brief solutions focused. It's brief solution focused therapy. So even a crisis call is certainly brief, but it's very solution focused. So what do you need right now to get to tomorrow? What do you need right now to feel a little bit better than you felt before you called? And taking those steps with people mm-hmm. is, I think, what's what's so important. I uh, worked at a crisis line, a hotline uh, years ago, mm-hmm. and I remember the lady who trained us said, you're not going to solve their problems. You're going to get them through the moment right? and help them take a step, like you said, to feel better. Can right. you, can, have you eaten today or taking your meds or can you whatever but that makes sense so it's it it can be short but life-saving right and sometimes it's it's not solving a problem it's helping someone understand it and understanding kind of allows you to master things and you can you then get why you're feeling like you're in a hole or why you're afraid or it's again what happened that has brought you to this place yes so it's kind of always that question i think If you're just joining us, we're talking with Michael McSurdy. He's the president and CEO of Family and Children's Service, FCS, here in Tennessee. And some of the programs are all over the state. When we have things like the pandemic, when we have things like natural disasters, we have tragedies, do we get an increase in people calling in for help and for, you know, to talk to somebody? And Yes. And like during the pandemic, we really had to pivot. I mean, mental health professionals everywhere pivoted to telehealth. And our state was very responsive and made that um, possible for folks really quickly. The community, the philanthropic community, really gathered around folks like family and children's and and said, well, what do you need to be able to do that? Because it was equipment. We, We weren't prepared for everybody to work from laptops at home because they worked in offices and yeah. had a telephone on their desk. And so there was a, a whole lot of mobilization really quickly. I think I, I think our staff did it really well. And, um, and, and so responsiveness is really important. So during the flood 10, 11 years ago, we were not flooded. All the phone calls came through the crisis line 
center, the crisis center at Family and Children's, and that kind of became the hub. Now, that's not the case every time, yeah. but in that situation, it was. Um, in other instances, there there was a tragedy um, a while back in um, uh, South Nashville, and in two weeks, two children were killed. One child drowned, another child was hit by a car, and it was a, uh, a largely immigrant and refugee community that was affected by this. We were the ones called, and we went out with folks speaking nine different languages and dialects to kind of debrief with those families what had happened, where they could get supports for their kids, understanding why it was hard to have seen that or to know that family or how do they mobilize as a community to support that family. But we had to overcome the language barrier and because of some other programs we have and because we've worked on being bicultural or multicultural as a staff, we had a lot of capacity and were able to, we were called that morning at eight o'clock and we were there at four after school debriefing with families that day. That's wonderful. So it was, it was, and it was, it was amazing to watch happen. Do communities who have English as a second language or maybe don't speak English, do communities who are a little isolated because of that, do they have a harder time getting access to help or they don't even know where to start, do they? Right. And often children are not limited by only having one language, Mm -hmm. but their parents are. And so often then when a family seeks help, it puts the child in the role of of driving the process. So we really want to try to make that not be the the case for families. We really want to support mom and being mom or grandma and being grandma and let the kid be the kid and not need to step into the role of the interpreter. So we really strive to make sure that and, and to also in the case of counseling, make sure that we're doing that in real time. It's not on the phone with an interpreter. It's it's doing that because our clinician is bicultural. Our co- clinician speaks Vietnamese or our, cl- or our clinician speaks Spanish or mm-hmm. um, uh, Kurdish or whatever yeah. the, the need is at the time. Wow, that's fantastic. What about when we have uh, situations even just like the weather? Just recently, people were in their homes for days right. straight. Crisis line calls go up. So that's both for our local crisis line, but also for the 988 number. So you'll also see those calls go up. And because we take calls that come from our geography, it's it's kind of matching our weather or our circumstances. We yeah. certainly have rollover calls from other centers if they're overwhelmed or if we're overwhelmed, our calls could roll over. But largely, we know what's happening kind of in the environment the person's living in. So what what is going on when we when people are locked up and isolated for long periods of time? What are they talking to you about and what do you say to them? Well, I think that anytime your your exposure is limited, what you're what you are exposed to is magnified. So, so oh. if if there is a breakdown in communication in your family, when you're only with your family, there's a big breakdown in communication. Or if one person doesn't treat another person well in that family and the child sees that, if the child isn't at school, the child has no break from that. So I think whatever is problematic is just amplified. And I think that's what happened in COVID. Certainly, mm-hmm. we were so locked down and we were so, it's almost like when you think about things folding in on themselves, mm-hmm. it it just, it it, it also 
it also kind of perpetuates, well, we don't talk about it because we can't talk about it because who are you going to talk about it to? Because you're never seeing somebody. Whoa. Do finances keep a lot of people from getting help? Yes. Um, I think that um, particularly mental health care, even if you have insurance, it may not have great mental health coverage. Um, and I also think, the, so I think that finances do keep people, and even if there is the potential of being able to pay for services, it creates a burden for people, certainly. And then that burden becomes the, sometimes can become the responsibility of the identified patient. So then the child who has been a problem, and I'm making quotes yeah. with my hands for people yeah. <laughs> who can't see me, that child then becomes not just that problem, but now we're struggling with this issue. So all of the services at Family and Children's are completely free. So it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is. That's not going to become a barrier. Because mm-hmm. we also don't know where you live may not determine what you have. We don't ever want to start. We don't analyze that. We don't have a sliding scale. If you come to us, you're coming to us because you have a need. And we're going to help you meet that need. Is Family and Children's Service a nonprofit? We are a nonprofit, so we um, we have federal, state, and local funding to to provide counseling and other services like our supports in the schools mm-hmm. are funded by the public school system here in Nashville. Okay. And then um, we also, Nashville is a very philanthropic city. The major foundations support us. And then we have um, a large group of people who have just historically cared about us. Hmm. And for some families, we have folks who are the fifth and sixth generation of people who've cared about us That's all the way back to, you know, even pre our current title, because we were part of something before that back around 1915. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. Do, what, what was it called? It, well, it was the origin of our adoption work. So we were part of an adoption agency and um, the, the Tennessee. Well, yeah, you, I can't remember. You don't you anyway, shouldn't remember it. <laughs> so, right, right, right. But the, the point is that's a whole other part of what we do. We have counseling specific to helping children have permanent families. So whether oh. that is having permanency with, a relative who's raising them, if their family is at risk of involvement with the child welfare system, so that such that the child might enter foster care. We have programs that support those families, both with counseling and with case management. And then we're also, we partner with the Dave Thomas Foundation as the Wendy's Wonderful Kid Agency for the state, really looking at trying to find forever families for teenagers and other more challenging to um, match children with um, forever families. Because the older a kid is, the harder it is to find somebody who's... Right. To... And and the thing that's so neat about that program is there's a real focus on not finding unknown resources for a child. Because if you're 14, some stranger is probably not going to be the place that feels forever for you. But you're baseball coach from when you were 12 might feel that way. Or so we do what's called archaeological dig work with kids and families to say, who knows you? Who cares about you? Those are the people who will likely step forward. And in a few cases, we have been really successful working with teenagers who said, I'm just going to go back to my mom and say parental rights were terminated on mom eight Hmm. years ago. Well, our staff went and looked for mom, and mom was working and doing well and had not had any issues for over six years. And 
we helped that child reconnect with that parent. And that is likely to be the most lasting long-term relationship wow. for, for that kid. So we call those programs, all that work we call permanency work. Yeah. We don't consider it. Adoption is not the only permanency option. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of ways kids find families. You know, like there's all the discussion of the family you choose. And I think that particularly young people can be pretty good at choosing that family if they're given the right support to do it. Yeah. And so we really we, we think about what's going to be permanent, what's going to be lasting for that child as they go into adulthood. Wow. If you've just joined us, we're talking with Michael McSurdy, the president and CEO of Family and Children's Service, a local nonprofit that does work throughout the state as well as here in Nashville and in Middle Tennessee. You mentioned the way that families are changing, the dynamics of families are changing. Maybe the maybe there's just a mom, maybe there's a dad or two moms, two dads, whatever the situation is, or a grandparent. Are we finding that trend of more and more grandparents raising their grandchildren is still is that still rising? Yes. And it has a, a lot of origins and it's good in one sense that it's rising because that's not having the number of children enter the child welfare system rise as quickly. Yeah. And placements with families are always stronger and more stable than any other kind of temporary placement for a child. What I think has complicated matters is substance use. I think that, um, honestly, that is the biggest influence on one generation relying on the previous generation of caregivers to step in, is, is substance use and related Uh, criminal issues. There are some mental health issues that lead children to be raised by their grandparents. Mm -hmm. You know, mom or dad may have those concerns. And certainly parents pass away. Yeah. They have tragedies that take their lives and that then makes that child need a family. Mm -hmm. And so we work with those grandparents. In some cases, grandparents adopt children. In other cases, they become permanent guardians. In other cases, they're there until mom or dad put things back together and then the whole family's reunited. Um, and and the good thing about that is there's nothing that broke relationships for that family. It's that we supported grandma in stepping up. Grandma didn't have to terminate the rights of her daughter to then legally parent, mm-hmm. you know, her grandchild. Um, what we've done is we've said all your relationships are important. Let's just put the supports here that make Johnny or Susie grow up with the most supports they can have. Right. How do you support the grandparent and how do you support the parents as they if they're trying to get back on track from something that happened? Right. So it's called the Relative Caregiver Program. That's the part of the agency that I'm talking about. And we provide those services for Nashville and all the surrounding counties. We and it is actually support to the relative caregiver. We pair that with our counseling program to support kids. But the supports to the relative caregiver are really what we think of as more therapeutic case management, helping grandma understand that she can stay grandma but still parent this child. She's not taking her her child's place. Yeah. She doesn't have to get at odds with her child over needing to do this. But also helping grandma realize, gosh, I am 73 years old and I have a four-year-old. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And And... How how does that grandmother navigate that? School is likely very different for grandma to interface with than it was when her child was going through yeah. school 35 years ago. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of um, 
helping step in and shore up those grandparents. And then there's also grandparents who were at a real place of, I'm retiring, my health is failing. So how do we shore them up in the area of making sure they have the health care they need? You know, and we, we are the health care access entity for the state under the Affordable Care Act. So we have a lot of staff, about 35 employees, who do nothing but help people navigate the federal marketplace, 10 care, cover kids, all of those avenues towards health care, and then also helping folks access free and otherwise funded um, health care services if, you, they, if they're not eligible. And you said you're the health care what? It's, it's called um, the Health Navigation Entity. Health Navigation Entity. Right, under the Affordable Care Act. So we have a, a grant from Health and Human Services at the federal level to provide those resources across the state. So it's sort of a no wrong door approach to you don't have health care. Let's look at what you're eligible for. And really, there is there, there isn't we still have a gap of folks who are not eligible for anything. And that's why we maintain a program that connects people with charity care all over the state. Oh. But a lot of people are eligible for marketplace plans or they're eligible for 10 care and they just didn't notice it or their kids were eligible undercover kids if you make um, under a certain limit and please call family and children's and they can help you know that limit because yeah. I'm not great with all the numbers um, but you know you can be a working parent you can have health care through work but you don't necessarily have to get the family plan which you may not be able to afford because right. it's usually not subsidized if you make under a certain amount of money, somewhere around forty-five to fifty thousand a year for a family, then your children may very well be eligible for what's called covered kids, which is um, the children's health insurance plan, the mm-hmm. federal children's health insurance plan, which runs through Ten Care, but it's it has um, it's coordinated by the federal government. I am so amazed that you guys are able to do so much for so many people. It's um it's amazing. We have grown <laughs> a lot. It's very exciting. And it's also really sobering that the need is so great. You know, yeah. but it's really an honor to get to kind of walk the journey with families and, and um and individuals. You don't have to be a family and mm-hmm. um just help people get from one place to a better place. I like that. Michael McSurdy, the president and CEO of Family Children's Service. We're going to put some links online so you can find out more about it. Make sure you join us again next week. I'm Anna Marie, and that's Focus.